All right, grab your Bibles if you have those. Deuteronomy chapter 33 is what we're looking at today. If you need a Bible, there are some there on the chairs there around you. Deuteronomy chapter 33, there's some there on the chairs around you if you need one. If you're using one of those, page 136. Or if the Bible that you're using from the chairs has a flame on it, page 175. 175. Deuteronomy chapter 33, this week and next week, and then we're, we're done with Deuteronomy. There is a um, celebration among my kids for that one, my particularly older ones, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 33 is where we're at. We're, we're, we're winding it down here. And uh, what we're going to do this morning, as you're looking at Deuteronomy 33, um, what you're going to see, the way it's structured, is there's a front part, then there's some blessings for each, uh, most of the tribes. There's one that's left out. I'm not, we're not going to cover the blessings this morning. So I want you to uh, read through there and figure out which one's left out. And then the real challenge is go figure out why. Why are they left out? Uh, and so we're going to look at the front and the end uh, for this morning's purposes. Because the front and the end have very similar themes. They function like bookends. And in between are the blessings. And the blessings are made because of the basis of what's explained in the bookends, which is about who God is. And so we're going to look at the, the front and that back end, and then just know the blessings are there in the middle. By the way, if you're going to go and study the blessings more deeply, then you'll also want to go back and compare them with Genesis chapter 48, 49, where you see um, more some of the blessings there as well that, that uh, were pronounced on these tribes. Compare and contrast, see some of the differences. Again, ask why is there a particular tribe left out here? Which one and why? Deuteronomy chapter 33. Here's where we're going this morning. The people whose God is Yahweh. Remember, we've talked about that a few times. You can pronounce this. This is God's name. As we put it in English, you can pronounce it a few different ways. We don't really know. Yahweh is the most common way. Yehovah. I've heard a very compelling case for Yehovah, not Jehovah. Yehovah. Um, Yahuwah is another one you might hear um, that's popular. Um, I've heard Yehovah recently too. That's a popular one. But anyway, it's, it's, we're not really sure. But that's what that stands for. It's his name. The reason I keep putting that in there, one, is because that's who he is. But two, also, we're trying to be very specific about which God we're talking about. Trying to be very specific about which God we're talking about. Um, as you, you well know, and as we mentioned last week, it's very easy to just say God, and it's very impersonal, and lots of people will be comfortable talking about God. But when you start to get very specific about, well, what God are we talking about? We're talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're talking about the God who has revealed his name to us, the God who is Yahweh, Yehovah, right? So the people whose God is Yahweh will see victory. That's what we're going to see as we look at these front and this end matter. The people whose God is Yahweh will see victory. Now, that statement alone, that's pretty exclusive, isn't it? Because what's implied is if you have any other God, little g, you're ultimately not going to see victory. It's only if your God is Yahweh, if you belong to him and you acknowledge him and you are living in faithful allegiance and faithfulness to him, that's when you will see victory. If you're serving any other God, any victories that you see will simply be temporary and they won't last. So let's take a look at that as we uh, take a look at um, verse 1 here, chapter 33, verse 1. So it starts out and he says, this is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said. So now 
the, the rest of what we're looking at is going to be content of this blessing. So now remember one thing here. Moses is about to go die. Okay, he's already been told, you're, you're, you're done, you have uh, given everything to the people that you need to give them, and so now I want you, he's going to tell them, go up to a high mountain, Mount Nebo, and go and die. That's where you're going to go and be with your fathers. Not because he's sick, not because he's too old and can't carry on, his eyes don't even fade at this point, but it's because of his disobedience that we've, we've talked about. It's because he did not uphold Yahweh as holy before the people. Remember when he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock. So he's about to do that, but he's got one last thing. See, Moses is a pastor. Moses is a shepherd. He both learned how to shepherd for 40 years while he was in the wilderness, and then when God brought him back to Egypt, he became a shepherd of the people of Israel. And he's caring for them, and he's pointing them in the right direction, and he's trying to nudge them along, and he gets frustrated with them when they go off in a different direction or when they forsake the leading and the guiding of their God. But he is a shepherd. He is a pastor all the way to the end. And that way, he's also then like a father. And he's going to take on the role briefly as the father of these people as he pronounces these blessings. Now, it's, it was very common in ancient Near Eastern culture and still, still is for, for a, a father when he's at the end of his life to be able to pronounce a blessing over his, his children, right? And so this is what Moses is now going to be doing. He's going to be pronouncing a blessing because despite all the frustration, despite all the things where he's been angry, even despite the fact that he's going to have to go up to a mountain and die and not go into the land with the people, he is going to bless these people on his way out, and so we look at verse 2. He says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Sair upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. And so now Moses is picturing their God. He's picturing Yahweh as coming from Mount Sinai. Now remember, this is, by the way, the only place in the book of Deuteronomy where the mountain is called Sinai. Everywhere else in Deuteronomy, it's called Horeb, H-O-R-E-B, right? That's the same mountain, it's just called different things. And so all throughout Deuteronomy, we've seen Mount Horeb, but now he calls it Sinai. Same mountain. This is where Moses went up and received the Torah. This is where at the base of that mountain, while Moses had gone up, the people left behind with Aaron worshipped the golden calf. But this is the place where God made a covenant with his people, where he entered into a marriage with his people. That, that's the type of covenant structure that we see in Exodus chapter 19, where they're at Mount Sinai. He's entering into this, this covenant with them like a marriage. And so Moses is now picturing him as coming from that location. And as you remember, when they left that location and they began traveling through the wilderness toward the promised land, they encountered opposition. But the God of Sinai... The same God who had brought them out of Egypt, the same God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was with them. And so whenever they would come across opposition, as long as they were faithfully walking with Yahweh, he would fight on their behalf. There were times when they forsook the covenant and he withdrew his hand. But then when they returned back to being faithful, he would fight on their behalf. So he pictures him, God is coming with his people from Mount Sinai on behalf of his people. He goes to the next line. He dawned from Sair, another location in that same region south of, of Israel where they're traveling from Egypt eventually up to where they're going to be. And he dawned from upon us. He dawned from Sair upon us. 
He shone forth from Mount Paran. Nobody really knows where Mount Paran is, but it's in that same region. So the, the idea is this. All three of those lines are picturing Yahweh as a divine warrior, as a divine warrior for his people, the one who goes forth and comes to the help and the aid of his people, the one who goes before them and fights their battles. That's the God they serve. That's the the God in whose name Moses is pronouncing this blessing, is the one who fights for his people. Remember, the people whose God is Yahweh will see victory. This is the God who fights for his people. This is wartime language. This is not simply um, a common casual language. He came from, he dawned from, he shone forth. That's wartime language. He's rising up to fight on behalf of his people. He is not sitting idly or passively by. He is active in the lives of his people. These next two lines, depending on your translation, it may say something different. If you're looking at a New Living Translation, which I know a lot of you do, this is not there. It says something different. And let me just say the reason for that, and you should have a footnote, both this, if you're reading ESV, it'll have a footnote and give you the other possible reading. If you have New Living Translation, it'll have a footnote and then give you this possible reading. It's just questioned. It, this is, it could go either way, depending on, on what vowel points you put. Remember, I told you a couple times now, Hebrew, the Hebrew language, when it was originally written, there was no vowels. The Hebrew language does not have vowels in it. Vowels were added later. It was just consonants. And so you might have three consonants together, and that can be you know, five, six different words depending on the context. And you just use context to decide what the word is. But later on, um, way after Christ, they, there, there were some scribes who started putting vowel or vocalization points, the little dots or lines that help you uh, vocalize what word they think it is based on the context. Right? So sometimes they get it right most of the time, but sometimes there's, it could go either way depending on the context, and the context is not as helpful. So that's why you've got two different readings there. To be honest with you, it doesn't really make much of a difference. Because in the big picture, regardless of whether your reading is the one in, in the New Living Translation, what it takes, or whether it's this one, it's still going towards picturing Yahweh as a divine warrior. Now, if you have this reading where it talks about tens of thousands of holy ones, it's referencing angels. It's, wrestle, it's referencing the angelic armies. There's a name that, that, that God reveals himself as, or he's called, oftentimes in the, in the Psalms we'll see that, is Yahweh Tzavaot or Yahweh Sabaoth, is how we might say it in English, Lord of hosts, right? Well, he, when we say hosts, what that word means is the angelic armies. He is the God who is the commander-in-chief of the angelic armies, the hosts of the heavenly beings. He leads them when he goes into battle. And so when he is coming from them, it means that's where he was in his divine court, and he's coming and he's aiding his people, but he has the hosts of heaven with him. He's a commander. He's a, he's a warrior. He's a general, if you will. And so it's picturing God. All of this goes as Moses is describing, is picturing the God who fights for his people. You see, that's important because these people, Israel, they have, they have encountered multiple different groups of people already. And these different people that they fight, we, you might remember early in Deuteronomy, we saw King Sihon, and then we saw King Og. Og was a giant, right? And they've come across giants multiple times, descendants of the Nephilim, and they are coming up against these, these, these um, very intimidating beings. 
And it's not just physical battle, physical warfare. This is spiritual warfare. This is holy war that is taking place. Because in the ancient Near East, it was commonly understood that when you go to battle, it's not just you physically battling against another people physically. It is your God versus their God who will prove to be mightier. And whoever's God proves to be mightier, if you got to live, was the God you then came under. And now that territory then became under the rule of that God, little g. And so as Yahweh goes and he's fighting for his people and he's crushing every bit of opposition that is before his people, which means then he is overcoming every God, little g, that is coming up against him. None of them can stand before him, which is why when we, when we see in the scriptures and in in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4, it says, hear, O Israel, Shema, right? That word, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God is one, or Yahweh is God alone. The idea is no one can stand beside him. No one can come up against him and, and compete with him. He alone stands in the place that he inhabits. Yahweh is the God who fights for his people, which is why we start out by saying the people whose God is Yahweh will see victory. So Moses goes on, though. Look with me at verse 3, 4, and 5. 3, 4, and 5. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. That's a unique thing right there, verse 3. Lots of people could speak about their God, little g, being mighty. Lots of people could speak about their God being a warrior and fighting their battles. But there's not another nation whose God was said to love them. You You didn't expect to be loved by your God, little g. Because the gods weren't, you weren't there to be loved. You were there to serve the gods, little g. The whole understanding of of all the other nations that worshipped all these other gods, little g, their understanding was we were created for the purpose of the gods to serve them, to give them food, which is what they would do with their sacrifices, so to feed them, to entertain them when they got bored, or to, to serve their purposes as there's things taking place in that, in that heavenly realm that we may not be aware of, but that they're, they're doing. And so it's like chess pieces being moved. That's how they viewed their gods. That's what's their understanding. And yet here now, Moses instructs his people, speaking of Yahweh, he loved his people. He loved them. That's intimate. He set his love on his people. Now here, we switch context. So whereas in verse 2, we saw thousands of holy ones, the context there indicates that that's likely angels, right, heavenly hosts, but now we're talking about the people, and he calls them the holy ones. There's a correlation there too. God has holy ones in the spiritual realm, he has holy ones here, and they all serve his purposes, but he loves his people. He has set his love on his people whom he calls his holy ones, his set-apart ones that were in his hand. And so these people, they follow in your steps, receiving directions from you. Again, receiving directions from Yahweh is 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 a thing of grace. When Yahweh decided to reveal himself to his people, he was acting in grace. When Yahweh then gave the Torah to Moses up on the mountain, he's acting in grace. Because he's revealing himself. 
He's making himself known so that then his people can know him, so that his people can know how to live in a relationship with him. Now, pause for a moment. If we were not to have our scripture as we have it, most of us have a personal copy. Many of us have many copies, right? And we have an abundance of wealth. If we weren't to have that, and there were no scriptures written down, for us to go look at, and then we were dependent upon some high priest or some, some uh, holy person, a holy individual, whatever that, that title might be, to teach us about the God that we serve, we wouldn't know a whole lot, would we? Or we'd be at the mercy of the people who are in power or control who tell us what they want us to know. And then we might find ourselves kind of fumbling in the dark, like, how, how do I live for this God? Well, I don't know what pleases this God. I don't want to misstep because if I misstep, then Baal might hurl a lightning bolt at me. But if I, if I please him, then my crops might, might be great. I just don't know what to do. And so it's trial and it's error and it's, it's experiencing things. And there's no grace there. And God loved his people. And he set his love on his people and one of the ways he demonstrates his love is that he reveals himself to us that we might know him, that we might then also know how to live in a relationship with him. And so verse four, when Moses commanded us a law, I bet you by now, you can guess what the Hebrew word is behind that, that word law. What is it? Torah. See, I want to point that out to you because we read law and then we disconnect because we go, I don't need that. That's not for me. But remember, what we've seen all throughout Deuteronomy is Torah is not just law. It includes law. It includes instructions and regulations and stipulations, but it also includes narratives and histories and how do I live? How do I live? And so when Moses commanded us a Torah, he is instructing. He's given us what God has given to Moses. Now Moses has given to the people, look at that, as a possession for you to be able to hold on to. You, you don't have to, to guess at what God expects or who he is or how he is. He gives his instruction to his people as their possession. They can keep it. They can hold on to it. They can access it. That's God's grace. And then verse 5 Yahweh became king in Jeshurun. That name, Jeshurun, we saw it show up, I believe, in chapter 32. It's, it's like a pet name. It's an endearing name that sometimes we see God use for his people, Israel, and he calls them Jeshurun here. And the Lord became king in Jeshurun when the heads of the people were gathered at the tribes of Israel. So now Moses brings this front part before he gets into blessings. He brings this front part to a close. And what he has done for us is he has pictured the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh. He has pictured him as a warrior, a divine warrior and a king. The king, the divine warrior who fights First people. And then he's going to go in through all the blessings of the different tribes. The reason he can then pronounce those blessings on all those tribes is because this is who God has proven himself to be. Okay? And we're going to keep going. We're going to jump now down to verse 26, where we pick up. So the blessings are in between that. Remember, this is sandwiched. So there's that front part we just looked at. Then there's blessings of almost all of the tribes. And then we get a, the end part here. So look with me at verse 26. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. 
The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. Few things, we're going to camp here for a little bit. There's a few things here that shows up that we keep seeing later on through scripture that I want to show you where that comes up. There's none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help. Moses is being exclusive. There's none like your God. The God who rides through the heavens to your help. Now, that may not mean anything for us. We might be able to pick up on the picture of how it's majestic and mighty for God to be riding on the heavens. And you might picture chariots and, and, and God is coming to the aid of his people. And you would be right to picture those things because that is part of what Moses is doing here is picturing Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, picturing that God as the one who comes riding on the clouds to the help of his people. But now... Moses is doing something else here. Because the very people that the people of Israel have been interacting with and will be living amongst in the land of Canaan worship primarily a God that goes by the name Baal. Baal is pictured as a divine warrior. Baal, oftentimes, if you look up pictures of them, not the modern-day pictures of them, but if you look up kind of the artifacts that we'll, you'll find, you'll oftentimes notice that at least in one of his hands, he's holding a lightning bolt. He was believed to be a storm god, the one who would send rain uh, in season so that they can have crops, but also a warrior god. And there are places in some of the ancient writings outside of the scriptures, uh, writings that were done by Canaanite um, people that we have, as they're talking about their God, Baal, they describe him as the rider of the clouds, the one who rides upon the clouds. So now, if you're living among a group of people and you've heard about this God, Baal, who they've worshipped, this is how they function in the land. This is the God they go to who helps them survive. And he's known as the rider on the clouds, the warrior God. What does it do now when Moses said, there's none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens for your help? Don't get confused. Don't give glory that belongs to Yahweh. Don't give it to any other created being. Don't give it to Baal. When, when God comes to your help, when, when Yahweh comes to your help and he's riding on the clouds to defeat the people, don't then turn and say, give praise to Baal for doing that. No, because it is no, there's none like your God. Now listen, when we worship, when we worship, it is, it is more easy than we realize it happens and we don't even know it's happening. That we, we say we are devoted to the one true God. And we say that with our lips and we even give ourselves to that God. And yet we're not giving ourselves wholly, fully. We're devoted to that God. And yet when we look at our values, when we look at the things that we spend time or affection, or the things that we actually order our lives and structure our lives around, or when we find the things that we try to protect and hold on to in our lives, there we find where we're really devoted. And so we may be giving lip service to the one true God. I'm a Christian. I worship the God of the Bible. And yet the way we live our lives and what actually comes out day to day does not reflect that. And that was the real challenge for the people of Israel, and it's still the challenge for us today, that when we come to God by faith, we are not called to just include him in our lives. 
Come along for the ride, God. Come along for the ride. Instead, we are called to completely reorder our lives around him. We are called to give complete and full devotion, full allegiance to him and him alone. And then everything else falls in line under that. Okay? That's the, that's the challenge here. There is no God. Don't get confused. Don't include worship of other gods into your worship. Don't give credit. Now, here's what else that might look like. Here's what else that might look like. When, when God brings something good into your life, he's providing for you. He's showing grace. You know, Matthew 5.45, you, you don't even have to be a believer, and God does this. He, Matthew 5.45 says, he causes the rain to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous alike. It's just God's common grace. But then for his, for his people, those that belong to him, maybe he's bringing things into your life. But then when you get things in your life, you say, karma. I've been good. I've been, I've been living good lately. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just reaping that, that what I've sown. And, then, and if you say karma, I want you to understand karma is based in Eastern religions like Buddhism, Hinduism, right? And it's tied not to a personal creator God, but instead tied to an impersonal force or universe, depending on how it's expressed. Karma has no place within our faith. Karma has no place alongside the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we might give credit to karma for something that God has done. Or the flip side of that is when we see someone experience something negative and we go, well, karma is... There's not karma. It's not karma. There, there's not that impersonal force. Okay? All right, another way we might do this is we, we might say, well, you know, Mother Nature's been good. There's no mother nature. There, is a, there might be a little G God, a spiritual being who is deceiving people and presenting itself as mother nature, but there's no mother nature. There's God, the creator, Yahweh, who controls the, 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 the weather. All that there is, he is in control of. There's no mother nature, but we might say that, right? Sometimes we just casually say it because it's worked its way into our, our vocabulary. Mother nature. Oh, I had another one, but I can't remember it right now. We'll come back to it later if I remember it. He goes on in verse 27. He says, the eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrusts out the enemy before you, and he says, destroy. So again, now this statement, the eternal God, there's no other one. That's the contrast. The one who has no beginning, the one that was before all that there is, the eternal God, which means every other deity, every other God, little g, is not eternal. And if you are not eternal, what does that mean? You've been created. If you are not eternal, you are created. If you are created, then you have someone, something higher than you that you must submit and align your life to. Because I am not the creator. I'm the, I'm the creator. I'm the pot. And I don't get to say to the potter what I want to do. I go to the potter and say, why did you create me? For what purpose? Okay. The eternal God, don't get him confused, the one who is before all things. He is your dwelling place. Now, that word dwelling place, that phrase, it's like a hiding place. Now, the word that's there is, is more like the, the, uh, the, the den or the lair of a lion, right? It's that place where you can go. It's secluded. It's safe. There's protection. And, and Moses says, your God, he's a dwelling place. He's a hiding place. Place. He's a shelter. Now, watch this. 
This is Psalm 71, verses 1 through 3. In you, Yahweh, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock. By the way, do you remember in chapter 32, if you've heard that sermon, it starts out and it calls God the rock, our rock. That's the same word there. Be to me a rock of refuge. And that's our word we're getting to. That's the same word that back here is dwelling place. Here it's just translated refuge. Be to me a rock and a refuge, a hiding place to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. This is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. The very one we're reading about in Deuteronomy and reading his words, here's his words in Psalms. Yahweh, you have been our dwelling place, same word, in all generations, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That part sounds like your God is eternal, the eternal God, right? But you have been our dwelling place. One more, Psalm 91, verse 9, 10. Because you have made Yahweh your dwelling place. Remember how we started? The people whose God is Yahweh will see victory. Because you have made Yahweh your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Do you see how this this description of this God that, that Moses is blessing the people in, it follows the people throughout, David even. Uh, and we capture it later with when Moses' psalm is included. We see that the people continue to remember and call upon the God who is their hiding place, their shelter, the one in whom they can go for refuge, for safety, for security. We're back in Deuteronomy now. Verse 28 and 29 are our last two verses in Deuteronomy 33. So Israel lived in safety. Okay, again, think about what we just looked at. He is your dwelling place. And then he goes on in verse 28, so Israel lived in safety. It's because Yahweh is their dwelling place that they can live in safety. It's because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is their dwelling place that they can live in safety and security. The second line in verse 28, Jacob lived alone. It's a, it's a way of describing he was secure. Not that he was lonely. He was secure. Right? And we go on in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. Verse 29. Happy or blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord the shield of your help, and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. Happy, the word can be happy or blessed. For us, happy has a lot of different connotations, so maybe it's more helpful to say blessed. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. When, when, When the God that you serve, the God that you live your life in faithful allegiance to is Yahweh, When the God who has delivered you is Yahweh, you belong to him, you're blessed. When you have experienced the salvation and the deliverance of the one true God, you're blessed. But I wonder if we quickly forget the blessing that is our salvation. 
Do we take it for granted? Do, do we fail to, 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 to contemplate and remember how blessed we are because this is not the lot of everyone? Not everyone can say that I belong to the one true God. Not everyone can say that he is my salvation. There are lots of people who are worshiping other gods, little g. There are lots of people who, when we get to that spot where, um, when Jared was reading Matthew 7, where they're going uh, to stand before the Savior, and they're going to say, we did this in your name. We did that in your name. And the things on their list are things like, we cast out demons in your name. We, 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 we said prophecies and delivered prophecies in your name. And yet Jesus is going to say, but depart from me because I don't know you. But we did good social justice type of things in your name. Depart from me, I don't know you. It's entirely possible to do things for God and still not know him and be known by him. How blessed you are when you are saved by Yahweh, the one true God. He's the shield of your help. Now you see that phrase, shield? Let's take a look there because that comes up. Um, a shield you know this, but let's just unpack it for a moment. You hold it up for protection, right? You, you, you might put multiple shields together in certain armies and they would, they would fortify their, their, their unit or whatever, but you hold it and it can, can guard you and protect you against swings of swords, thrusts of swords. It can catch arrows, right? It, it, can, even be, it can even be used as a weapon if you need to, to to be able to block or push, but it is primarily a defensive weapon that is used to block you and guard you against that which is attempting to harm you and he says, God is your shield. The God who is your salvation is your shield. And so look with me at some of these psalms. Psalm 18, verse 30. Actually, Psalm 3, verse 3 first. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Do you see how this is coming together? He's a shield. He's not a shield for everyone. But if he is your God, the one to whom you belong, if he is the one from whom you have received salvation and you take refuge in him, he is your shield. Psalm 28, verse 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song, I give thanks to him. Last one. Our soul is Psalm 33. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. The people whose God is Yahweh will see victory. Now, here's the problem. We all too easily give lip service to God. I worship him. I live for him. He's my God. And yet, as I've mentioned already, our lives tell a different story. It is entirely possible to say that I worship this God, but if you're not depending upon him, you're not worshiping him. If, you, if you're just giving lip service, but then everything else in your life is by your own strength, or you're looking to, to people who have been put in positions, or you're looking to professionals in a given field, and you're not going to the one true God and depending upon him, you're not worshiping him. If you are, if you are giving lip service and saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Jesus, and yet everything about your life is oriented around something other than him, 
You're not worshiping him. If you don't go and take refuge in him, you don't find him to be your shield and your hiding place, but instead you hide and you shield yourself with things that you can control or that other people say to you, this is how you do that, and you never once go and say, God, this is your battle. I seek refuge in you, and you're not worshiping him. Last thing I've got for you in Colossians, in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, I'm just going to read it word for word. I was going to paraphrase it, but let's not do that. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now listen, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does it look like for me to come to God and him be my hiding place? You must come by faith to his savior, his Messiah, Jesus. You, you cannot take refuge in God apart from the one that he has given for us. The one in whom Paul was able to say, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Only when I am hidden with Christ in God can I say I worship the one true God. He's my hiding place. From him I have received salvation. From him I receive deliverance. For him I exalt and I sing songs filled with joy. For him I live my life in faithful obedience. For him I orient everything else around him. And there is life. Because that is what God's Torah gives. Life. He tells us who he is. He teaches us who he is. He revealed himself through the Messiah, Jesus. He was the invisible God made visible. In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. He is revealing himself, the same God who gave Moses the Torah on Mount Sinai, who revealed himself to his people, continues to reveal himself, and he invites us to come and take shelter in him. So, Father, in this room this morning, there's a mixture of people. You know every one of their hearts and their minds. And so, God, would you let your spirit now come and bring to each person what is needed this morning, what we need to hear from you. Give us understanding of your word. Show us the areas of our lives where we are not living, we are not devoted to you, where we are bringing alongside other gods and trying to worship both of those things. Father, where there are those in this room who have not uh, found their lives hidden with Christ and God, but this morning you're calling them to come and trust in, in Jesus, would you now show them the beauty of the gospel of what Jesus did when he came and he died on behalf of sinful people? He who knew no sin, Jesus, innocent, perfect, spotless lamb, he who knew no sin became sin for us. 
so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. There is no righteousness to be found apart from him. So draw them to trust in you this morning. Here in just a moment, we're gonna dismiss and we'll have a few people available up front to pray with you. And so if you're available to pray with folks this morning, go ahead and grab one of those lanyards and make your way up front here. They're there to pray with you about whatever. If you have questions about the gospel, trusting in Jesus, they'd love to visit with you about that. If you have prayer about stuff going on in your life or you've got sicknesses, you'd like prayer for healing or anything like that, they're available to pray for you. So as we dismiss, you're welcome to come visit, visit with them. They'll be looking for you. And what I want to do to end us out, well, it's not going to go back, is Psalm 33, which I had thrown up there this moment. I want to pronounce that as a blessing over us. Psalm 33, verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Depart from here and know that if you belong to the one true God, he is your help and your shield. So wait for him, trust in him. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Depart from here and trust in the name of the one true God. And then let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So Father, as we depart from here, let your steadfast love be upon your people as we hope in you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you next week.